Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Hello, listeners. Well, here we are at the end of 2020, finally. This isn't the year any of us wanted. And if you feel as though you are limping through to the end of it, you're not alone. We've all faced challenges individually and collectively as a result of COVID-19. It's been a big adjustment for all of us to navigate life in this new way. I know for me, I'd normally spend the year travelling the world for the different roles I undertake, for organisations like the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and the Global Partnership for Education. This year, I've been very much at home in Adelaide. I've missed face-to-face contact, the new places and the energy, ideas and excitement that are generated in a room full of people. But there have been some upsides to not travelling my own bed, my local beach, and I've been able to see more of my family, including being here for the start of my new great-niece's life. Baby Gwen joined us in July. I've come to both loathe and love digital platforms and new ways of communicating. Unfortunately, with global commitments, being online in the middle of the night has been a far too common experience. This year, a podcast of one's own reflected the new normal too. While I haven't been able to travel, my conversations have still traversed the globe, but from the safety of my home. Many of my guests have reflected on the pandemic's impact on gender inequality. We have discussed women, the workforce, and how we structure our working lives, leadership, and what we want and need from our world leaders now. There seems to be a rethinking of the traditional styles of leadership and a focus on the need to incorporate other traits like kindness, empathy and compassion. As we approach the end of 2020, I've gone back through the many episodes we've released this year and picked out some of my favourite discussions for you to enjoy. Someone I've always admired is Sally McManus, I've known Sally for many years through professional life and always found her style of leadership refreshing. Now as head of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Sally is leading the conversation about the impact of the pandemic on the economy and working life. Unlike earlier disruptions, often major adjustments in the economy around manufacturing affecting full-time male jobs, COVID-19 has disproportionately been about women's work. We are seeing the impact on part-time, casual work, the hospitality, travel and tourism industries, sectors where the workforce tends to be a feminised one. It's become clear we need more secure jobs and a less segmented labour force. The new ways of working we are pioneering now could and should stay with us 
and give us more flexible and gender responsive workplaces. My conversation with Sally took place before COVID really made an impact, so we didn't discuss these issues, but our conversation went in directions I hadn't experienced before in podcasting and rarely experienced in conversations with other women. Sally said she'd done things she was, wait for it, good at. It's so unusual to hear a woman say she is good at things. Here she is telling me about her childhood soccer dreams. Well, this is way back in the day, so this would have been in the early 80s, and I was really good at soccer. <laughs> and I had two younger brothers, so I was sort of used to roughing it with my younger brothers, and I was bigger than them, so I was used to being stronger than them too until they hit puberty, and that wasn't it's something I was happy about. But anyway, I, was, I used to play soccer at lunchtime with the boys because it was only the boys doing so. I used to play soccer after school, and the coach would just let me join in, and I was the best in the team. And I really, really wanted to play because it'd go to the weekend and there'd be the match on and I couldn't play because there was these ridiculous rules saying that, you know, girls couldn't play in the boys' teams. They ended up taking it to through the hierarchy of the soccer club and they had a meeting and they decided, no, girls can't play in the team. And for me as a 10-year-old, it just seemed so ridiculous but so deeply unfair. Like this is something that I love, but not only did I love, I was better than all the others. Like, why couldn't I play? Yeah, use that skill. And I suppose in my simple, you know, child mind back then, I thought, well, it's just because I'm not a boy. Well, that's it. So I borrowed my brother's school uniform and I went to school the next day and I lined up in the boys' line and I said, I'm no longer Sally, I'm Shane. And that's it. And I've, I thought that that would be a successful way of getting me into the soccer team. Now, did that work? No, it was a disaster. <laughs> Total disaster. The school didn't react well. My parents certainly did not react well. They, I think, thought it was probably more than it was. It was just simply me wanting to play soccer. I'm sure schools would deal with this much better these days, but they did not deal with it well. So I remember the next day my mother sent me to school with uh, clips and bows in my hair, which I duly ripped off the minute I got around the corner. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't make it into the soccer team. Sally's self-recognition of talent is something we see too little of amongst women, even in leadership positions. This makes me think of a discussion I had with Hannah Fry, who is a mathematician, broadcaster, author and journalist. Hannah applies maths to human behaviour, looking for patterns where you wouldn't expect to find them. In fact, in 2018, Hannah used maths to predict the effects of a global pandemic on her BBC show, Contagion. I spoke to Hannah as the global effects of COVID-19 began to emerge and it became clear in the discussion around pandemic response and policy, women's voices, whether politicians or scientists, were not being properly heard. In this next clip, Hannah articulates some of the reasons why well-credentialed women who are experts in their field might not put themselves forward publicly. I have noticed actually in terms of certainly the UK, the, the people that we're hearing from the UK, I'm noticing a real lack of female voices, actually, even from the scientists, uh, as well as the political leaders. And I wonder about that a bit, because it's not the case that there aren't any women working on this response, particularly in the scientific advice side, which is the side that I know a lot more. There are a number of really brilliant, really brilliant women who are working on this. So in fact, actually, possibly shouldn't tell you this, but uh, we're doing this program for the BBC at the moment. 
And I was determined. I was like, I know that there are these female experts. I, I mean, I know them. I want to put some female faces on this because the public thinks that it's just completely this wall of men who are doing this. And talking to these female experts, trying to persuade them to get on the show. I mean, the number of people that we've tried, that we've contacted to try and get them to talk in public and just not been able to persuade them. And I can't help but think that the public reaction to what the scientists are saying is so fierce and so, I don't know, spiteful and full of just anger. There's one mathematician or a couple actually in particular in in the UK, Neil Ferguson, who is the sort of famous one, who's now getting hit pieces by the the press, talking about his love life on the, the, splashing it on the front pages of newspapers, right? He's a mathematician for goodness sake. (laughs) Another guy, Graham Medley, who was on the front page of the Times, you know, his quotes, I think personally being taken very unfairly. And the the emails these people are receiving, and I, I just think it's, it's really not a surprise that the women who we all know get this stuff far worse are just taking a bit more of a back seat and I think there's something that's a real shame about that actually that we're being so angry about this that we're that we're stopping the women coming forward and being more vocal yeah that is a certainly a depressing circle that mm. we do know that women get more abuse online um, that's clearly been proven and so that's becoming an impediment for hearing women's voices during even a crisis like this mm. though i suppose a curmudgeon would say well you know maths is maths and does it really matter who's crunching the numbers and presenting it given they're always going to add up to be the same I don't think they do always add up to be the same. I think that there are choices that you can make as you go along. And I think that it's incredibly important that those choices are made by people with a wide range of life experiences as possible to that curmudgeon. (laughs) Sadly, the criticism of women and their appearances was happening a long time before the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been a disappointing but common discussion thread amongst many of my podcast guests who conduct their careers in the public spotlight. They've had to contend with harsh media and online commentary about their appearance that would make even the most resilient want to crawl under a rock and not come out. That's where British historian and classicist and some would say living national treasure Mary Beard decided to take a different approach. Mary is a mainstay on British television, but it was a role she came to reluctantly. Here Mary and I discuss a review she received in the Sunday Times saying she was, quote, too ugly for television. She describes how it felt to read those words about herself. Well, it is a shock. I mean, it would be nice to say, oh, I was very blasé about this, you know. But, you know, you pick up the Sunday Times and you think, oh? And it's it's a bit like someone punching you, just a little bit. And then you you think a few minutes later, that is just ridiculous. I mean, it was, you know, it went on and on about, you're coming into our living rooms, you might at least make yourself look presentable and couldn't you brush your hair and those tombstone teeth, God, they're dreadful, you know, on and on and on. What I thought was interesting about it was I thought, I'm not going to have this. This ain't on, really. So I sort of fought back and it became a little cause celebre, which I think in the long run has done good, really, to the argument, partly because it 
it extended beyond you know, middle-class liberal Guardian readers who, of course, thought this was terrible. And I wrote something for the Daily Mail about it. I was slightly trepidatious about doing that because I thought, gosh, you know, I've got sort of stereotype, maybe wrong, of Daily Mail readers, and I thought they were, would all be on Gill's side. Right. But I thought, nevertheless, I'm going to say, look, you know, I look ordinary. You know, this is what I look like. I look like... I look like what a 50, I was in 55, I look like what a 55-year-old woman looks like unless she's had an enormous amount of work done. And I wrote this in the mail. And what I was really surprised at was the comments under the line. I mean, you, you know, you're always told never look at the comments under the line, particularly not in the Daily Mail. You know, better to preserve your sanity than to do that. They weren't all supportive of me. The majority were. And I suddenly realised, look, the demographic of the readers of the Daily Mail is middle-aged women like me. They don't like Gil saying this either because it's about them as much as it's about me. So it was quite sort of cheering to feel that what he thought was a, a nice piece of laddish wit, I guess, had really rebounded on him. I'm pleased to say that people invaded his Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> what greater punishment is there than that? <laughs> a woman who is no stranger to show business is Sarah Snook. Now, I must admit, I had a bit of a fangirl moment chatting to Sarah, who stars in one of my favourite TV shows, Succession. Sarah was nominated for an Emmy in 2020 and has had quite a career ascent from her early days growing up in Adelaide. I found her thoughtful and fun. At the start of the episode, Sarah even told me about how she'd been role-playing airport security with her housemate to counter the boredom of being in lockdown in Melbourne. During our chat, we discussed the idea of an expiry date for women in Hollywood, and this next clip is Sarah describing how she feels about the pressure Hollywood puts on women to look a certain way. It's hard to ignore that aspect and element of this industry, I think, because it is a visual industry and naturally humans are more inclined to appreciate beauty and things that they find beautiful. But also we're inclined to find things interesting if they are different as well. And I think that's important for us to be showing on screens that diversity and, and differences of people and, and differences of things that can be beautiful. You get used to an idea that you're meant to be a certain way or type and then believe that you're not. And so how can you change or be different? And I remember to fit that, which is not necessarily the right thing to do, but I remember being told by my manager that beauty fades, but talent doesn't. So work on one and not the other. And I thought that was that was really strong advice right at the beginning because it, it has been something to really lean on and use as a, as a North Star, I think. It's very yeah. wise advice. I wonder how many young women in acting get advice like that. I would fear that yeah. many get the reverse <laughs> advice. Yeah, and the roles that I wanted to play and had still wanted to play aren't the girlfriend or the, the two I see to the, the male lead. They're the ones that are complex. Like growing up, I watched lots of Disney films, and I, I now think about how how is it possible that I watched loads of Disney films and was never attracted to any of the princess narratives, and yet wanted to be Ursula, Jafar, Scar, um, Simba, Aladdin. I wanted to be all the like fun, interesting roles. Gender didn't come into that for me. Sarah's discussion of Disney characters she admired as a young girl has made me think of another wonderful guest I spoke to this year, 
none other than Emma Watkins, who most people would know as Emma Wiggle, part of the world-famous children's music group The Wiggles. She was the first female to join the group and has become known for her singing, ballet and use of Auslan, sign language, in her performances. I suspect that there would be very few young children in Australia that hadn't seen Emma dancing and singing via the TV in their own lounge room. Emma really is someone many of our youngest girls and boys look up to. I spoke with Emma about the pressures of that influence and what it feels like to know so many little people see you as one of their biggest role models. I never think of it as myself in some weird way and and even when I see Emma Wiggle dolls in the shops. I know it's me, but it's <laughs> but it's it's her too. But the greatest thing about being a wiggle as opposed to playing a part in a musical theater production is that you are able to be yourself and you have your own name. So many people ask me, is Emma actually your name? <laughs> but now I think, you know, when we're looking out into the audience and we see so many children and not just the girls, but boys and now mums and dads are wearing yellowed shirts and yellow tutus and bows in their hair, bow ties, bows on their shoes. I think over the last couple of years, initially I was quite daunted. You know, you feel such a lot of pressure looking out and all these people are dressed like you. <laughs> but then you hear the stories of parents talking about that, you know, what, what you just mentioned before, children, you know, looking up to Emma Wiggle and, and even they might have started dance because they'd seen it on the Wiggles for the first time or playing the drums. I hear that quite often. And now I guess because I drive the big red car, parents are using that to help children travel in the car and do up their seatbelt. And so there's so many different aspects of life that you initially don't realise that you're having an impact on with families with young children, but it's very real now. (laughs) You know, eight years in, it's happened. It's really happening. The question of how to increase the real visibility of women as role models and champion their achievements is something Professor Claire Wright thinks about a lot. Claire has written a book called You Daughters of Freedom, which tells the story of how women fought for and won the right to vote in Australia. We talked about how women in leadership positions are taken less seriously because we don't know enough about the women leaders of the past. So how do we fix that problem? It starts by sharing the stories from history, building statues of famous women and visibly recognising their contribution. Here Claire talks about the importance of how we tell the stories of women from the past using a mythical example. I was just reading this morning, I have a friend who's just had a baby and because we're all in lockdown and I bought a book and I'm about to send it to him and it's a book of Greek myths because he's named his child Atlas actually, which is quite beautiful, holding the world on his shoulders. So I was just having a look at the Greek myths and I was looking at the one about Pandora's box And I hadn't actually realised quite how sexist these stories are. I mean, the story of Pandora's box, we think about that now as being, you know, kind of a letting the cat out of the bag moment. You know, once you've taken the lid off something, you can't push it back in again. But actually, the story is that Pandora's curiosity, her kind of rebelliousness in taking the lid off this vessel that the gods had said not to look into, actually led to every terrible, evil piece of misery, poverty, sin, vice, 
that the world was perfect and then Pandora came along and stuffed it up but through her intellect and her curiosity. So I suppose that is the kind of underlying archetypal, what I'm calling a kind of a bedtime story there, that women who dare to step out of the confines of the roles that they've been expected to play, of the qualities and values that they're supposed to carry, of meekness, of reserve, of purely of care and compassion, and women who exert any kind of influence, agency, curiosity, intellect, dissent, resistance, rebelliousness, that the whole Jungian (laughs) (laughs) ceiling comes down upon their head. Of course, these women are to be feared. If they are the source of all of the world's ills, then they they are to be feared. You know, we still see that kind of, sorry to say it, but you experienced it yourself. You know, all of us who lived through your tenure as prime minister, and we've seen it with many other women in power, that if you dare to be Pandora, if you speak the truth, if you lift the lid on the lies and deception, if you just care to dig a little bit deeper, you pay a very high price for that. And I think apart from the personal toll that that takes on individual women, I think in a collective sense, what that has done has turned women's against their own history. Because all of those women who have challenged, who have pushed the boundaries, who have created the change that that my generation of women are certainly reaping the benefits of today so that we can, you know, we can just walk up to the polling booth and completely take for granted that you can cast your vote so much so that, you know, people get all in a flap about it and they're kind of like, oh, it's going to be very distracting to my day and how am I going to be able to get to buy this or do the shopping when I've got to go and vote for gosh sake. We just have no idea how hard women have struggled for us to be able to do the things that we take for granted today. And I think that if the bedtime stories we were told, if we could include them in our national consciousness, our historical consciousness, our cast of characters that we consider to be our national heroes, then women today, I think that they would have more respect. You know, you might think this is a long bow to draw, but we hear every day that so much of domestic violence in particular is caused by the lack of respect for women. You can have structural changes that will empower women like equal pay and anti-discrimination laws, but the sort of disrespect that that is still culturally very embedded in the way that we consider gender relations. I think that if men and boys could see the things that women have done in the past, if nations could laud the things that women have done in the past, and I don't mean just women who went to war, you know, who did those gung-ho masculine things, but women who changed the very fabric of society through their actions. I think that we might have a situation today where women who are visible, who speak out and who act up are seen as being less of threats and more of just part of a national character that we could be proud of. This discussion of stories we are told about the women of the past brings me to another conversation I had this year with none other than the inimitable Kate Blanchett. Alarmingly, when we spoke, she'd just been the victim of a home chainsaw accident. Thankfully, she was okay. Kate is a two-time Academy Award-winning actor and has played some compelling characters in the span of her career. She recently finished working on her new TV series, Ms America, 
which told the real-life story of Phyllis Shafley, who fought against the Equal Rights Amendment in the US in the 1970s, a character with whom Kate shares very little in common. This led me to ask Kate about the kind of courage it takes to play roles as an actor when you have to invest so much of yourself in a character who may be so unlike you. To my surprise, Kate found this question quite amusing and took this conversation to a place I didn't expect, with Kate asking questions of me. I find it hilarious, Julia, that you are talking to me about courage. You, you, one of the most courageous women in politics, are talking to me about courage, you know, in in relation to the the incredible acts of courage on a a minute-by-minute, the bravery that that, that you have displayed and, and has been required of you. I mean, mine pales into insignificance. I mean, I think the difference for me, and I'd love to know what you think, the difference between a politician and an actor is that we are allowed to be. It's our job to be wildly inconsistent and provocative. It's we're, we're outside the system, as it were. So it's important to, to fail and to misstep because that's how you, you grow and the, the, pub, the failure is incredibly public. But politicians, it's all about consistency. It's all about thesis. And I think whilst some of the issues that you're talking about that I've stepped into, climate change, I don't know how saving the planet for future generations is a political issue, but it is. And I don't see how being compassionate and um, welcoming to the, the world's most vulnerable, which is what the global displacement crisis is dealing with, I don't know how that's political, but it is. But that arm of my interest, I suppose, is, is slightly political, but I never see my work as being political. Whereas I don't know how, how you, you, I mean, it must be, I mean, Phyllis Schlafly said something, and I don't know if you have the same, the same taste for blood, but she said, if you, you know, it's like a doctor who can't stand the sight of blood, you're in the wrong profession. If you, and if you can't stand controversy, you know, you can't get into politics. Is that true? Oh, I think that's certainly true. Um, And you can't be, you can't be afraid of the clash of ideas you know because good things come out of the clash of ideas we should on the biggest you know hardest questions of our age we should be prepared to have you know real debates and Mm. a sort of spirited go and not view that as impolite or you know somehow inappropriate Mm. but it's yet you're right there is a rigidity about uh, politics that is the exact opposite of what you do there's a consistency that people expect from their politicians and they do mark people down for inconsistencies understandably I know but but it's also not not talking about wild inconsistencies but things do shift and change and something that I do bemoan and I, I really relished looking back on the transcripts of in the 70s is there was this there was this um, understanding and relish of public debate, that that was part of the debate big ideas and that that sense of public discourse and the wrestling of different ideas and, and finding with the desire to find a common ground seems to have been, that rug has been pulled out of, from our feet, I think, in, in, in politics often. 
you know, I mean, that's what a rehearsal room is like. You, you throw everything up in the air and you, you know that you have to enter the same stage and tell the same story. And that's the drive behind it. It's a connective drive. Whereas I think what's happened, and once again, you'd know this much more than I would, but it seems to be a divisive drive, that it, the battle is everything rather than the, the discourse. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of perceived political reward now in endless hyperpartisanship. That it's yeah, actually yeah. the the division that most motivates your tribe mm. to continue on the political battlefield rather than reaching an outcome and saying that's settled now. And I think that's a whole lot to do with uh, the way the media has changed and what yes. runs and all the rest of it. So mm. you're, you're right. I think that, uh, you know, public policy, big discourse, we always need to have it, but we found it quite hard to establish new rhythms for it in this current time. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. In the decades to come, I believe when we talk about contemporary history, we will divide it into the era before and the one after 2020, which will be seen as the pivot point because of the pandemic and the new focus on racism after the tragic death of George Floyd. This year, the Black Lives Matter campaign became a global phenomenon with protests in many cities around the world. It forced many of us to confront our own biases and consider questions about race and racism we had perhaps not worked through before. The perspectives of black people and the racism they face on a daily basis came squarely into view. Professor Marsha Langton is someone who has spent her life spotlighting the grievous inequalities faced by Aboriginal Australians, especially women and girls. I found our conversation about her childhood growing up in Australia to be compelling. I wanted to know how Marsha not only survived but thrived in an environment where racism was the norm. Well, the main strategy was uh, reading books. I found school libraries and public libraries at a very early age. And I can't remember when I first started to read. I certainly started to read before I started school. I became fascinated by all the signs and images around me and I was compelled to decode them. And, you know, I love to draw and I eventually, I think, pretty much taught myself to read and I read books and learned how to take books out of the library from a young age. So that was strategy number one. Strategy number two was well, I was brought up in a particular way, a very old-fashioned Aboriginal way. Children were taught in my, amongst my people not to speak to adults and certainly not to be cheeky or to speak back at adults. There were very strict rules. So I could live in a world of silence. And so when I wasn't going to school, doing chores, you know, sitting around the 
fire or at the dinner table, I would go into the bush and sit under a tree and often in a tree. I would pick my favourite tree and sit in a tree and read a book. So I think having time to myself in the bush and to think about all that had happened during the day and to think about interactions that I didn't understand. Some teachers were very cruel. Some of my fellow students were very cruel. And it required me to think about it because I had no defences. So I think I became an intellectual in grade one. (laughs) (laughs) So with the silence and the scholarship and trying to think about racism and your treatment, not that you would have used those words then. No, I didn't hear the word racism until the late 1960s. So there were no words for me. I didn't know of any words that described my encounters. So, you know, I didn't hear the the word sexism or feminism until the early 70s. I shared many deep and thoughtful conversations with my guests this year. I also shared a lot of laughs, especially with none other than Deborah Francis-White, who hosts one of the most popular podcasts of all time, The Guilty Feminist, which is a confessional-style show where women share the way they have failed as feminists. Deborah was a fabulous guest and lots of fun. Our conversation covering many of her life experiences, including how she was a Jehovah's Witness but left the faith as she found it didn't align with her feminist principles. Deborah started out in the world of comedy, which is a space that has traditionally been reserved for men. She told me about the continuing and pervasive view that women just aren't cut out for comedy. So if I go out to a regional comedy club, and I have done it many times... I will see people in the front row of the audience look at each other and in front of my face say, I don't find women funny, I don't like women ones. Genuinely, they say it. And you just have to go, okay, I'm going to have to spend the first five minutes of my set overcoming your expectation. That women aren't going to be funny. Right. And people come up afterwards in the bar. If Every time you have a good gig in a comedy club, I think to a fault every time I've had a good gig in a comedy club, someone will come up to me at the bar and go, just wanted to tell you... um, I don't normally find women funny, but you were hilarious. Oh. And I, I'm like, what am I meant to say to this? Thank you for resting your bigotry for a full 15 minutes. <laughs> so I, you know, like, I, I don't know what to say, but I don't believe you because I think you find your mum funny, your sister's funny, your your partner funny, your best mate's funny. I don't, women say it to me. Women say it to me. And I'm like, you, when you go out on the town with your girlfriends and you get a bottle of fizz on the table and whatever, <laughs> you roar with laughter. You've probably peed yourself a bit with laughter. You do find women funny. You've just been fed an expectation of what a comedian with a mic looks like. While we're on the topic of comedy, Aisha Hazarika, a political advisor turned comedian, joined me on the podcast this year. She hilariously and poignantly discussed the similarities between comedy and politics. In her career, Aisha worked as a political advisor to some of the UK's top Labour politicians, including Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman. In this clip, she describes the different treatment she noticed between the three and reflects on whether gender had any role to play. Ed Miliband and and Gordon Brown got a really, really hard time, no question about it. But Harriet got a hard time for the same reasons as they did, but had an additional level of abuse because she was a woman. So 
surname Harriet Harman because she was a feminist, Harriet Harperson. There was just so many caricatures of her always just being like this kind of like harpy or a sort of shrew, you know, she was always like shrill, you know, whereas Gordon Brown was like the clunking fist, you know, she was like screechy or, you know, all of that kind of thing. And because we were also working on gender issues and she was, in my view, this country's sort of leading feminist and, you know, has been for quite some time and has done more, I think, single-handedly to to help women in this country, particularly through legislative changes than almost anyone else I can and think of. But, you know, she was really singled out for that. And she was also attacked because she was not apologetic about being a feminist. She wasn't like a, oh, God, I'm really, really sorry, but I'm going to like, is it OK if we ask for a few more rights? We won't ask for too many rights, but just a couple, you know, just to, you know, she was like, no, we demand these, like, give them to us. It's our right to have these rights. And she was also very much like, you shouldn't be the nice girl as the feminist, politely asking. You should be like kicking down the door and you should be fighting with people. But Harry had this phrase, a row is as good as a rest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. She loved a row. Like Harry could have a row in an empty room. She loved a row, right? <laughs> and so, but, but she got a really, really hard time in the press from that. But also she got a lot of briefing against her from male colleagues within the Labour Party, particularly over how, in commas, strident she was. I mean, we had a, a, an incident once where we were going to America for a visit to Washington and we were making plans to meet Hillary Clinton. Because why wouldn't? I mean, Harriet was essentially the equivalent of the deputy prime minister, like the most senior woman in British politics, meeting Hillary Clinton. And we're, you know, trying to make contact with the office and we're trying to set it all up and all the plans are in place. And just before we're due to leave, a very senior male advisor comes to speak to me and says, um, what, what do you think you're doing? I was like, I'm setting up a meeting with Hillary Clinton. He's like, no, you're not. And I was like, why? And he's like, he was like, I don't know if you understand how politics works, but Hillary Clinton is one of the most important people in American politics. Her time is really precious. She's only going to give up one slot to see one British politician within a certain time frame. And if you think we're wasting that slot on like you and Harriet, you've got another thing coming. Oh. She needs that slot for a proper politician, i.e. like a man. And the idea we're going to waste that slot talking about gender issues... And he was basically like, if you go ahead with this visit, there there will be serious consequences to to pay. And we were explicitly told to back off. I mean, it ended up fine because we met Nancy Pelosi instead, who was like such a laugh and amazing. amazing. Yeah. <gasps> I mean, we were just, she was so, but it was like, that's the kind of thing we would encounter on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Many of us spent the year gripped by the unfolding Trump versus Biden campaign in the United States. And on the podcast this year, we explored the role of gender in politics, with some episodes focused squarely on the US presidential election. Jennifer Palmieri, political advisor and former director of communications to Hillary Clinton, who also worked for Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, joined me to analyse what we might be able to expect once votes were counted. And on reflection, I think many of her predictions held up. One surprising element of our conversation, however, was our discussion of Monica Lewinsky, who was Jennifer's intern when Jennifer served in Bill Clinton's White House. In this next clip, Jennifer reflects on that time and how she and the rest of the world now see things differently when men of influence abuse their power over women. 
Monica was my intern. And then I worked for uh, U.S. Senator John Edwards, who ran for president and, and had ended up that he had had a child out of wedlock uh, while he was married to his wife during the presidential campaign. So I've had a lot of experience with this. And, you know, when the Lewinsky story broke that said that, you know, the President Clinton had had an affair with her, you didn't believe it because it was, you're like, how could he be so stupid? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Well, of course you don't believe it because that would be so incredibly reckless to do. And that was, you know, that was my thought about him. But in real time, watching the way Monica was hunted was so chilling. You know, she was treated like a pawn in a game that was all about men in power, right? So the independent counsel, his name was Ken Starr, who sort of sought her out and interrogated her. They basically scooped her up. That's like the terms the U.S. intelligence uses for like when you capture a spy or a terrorist, they like scooped her up at a shopping mall and basically held her for a long time and basically, you know, interrogating her without a lawyer. And then she just became this national joke. And I remember watching her mother leaving the FBI after she had been questioned and she just looked physically broken. You know, even then, while I didn't think President Clinton should have been impeached because I didn't think that the people who were seeking his impeachment were doing it out of concern for Monica. It was all just about, again, she was just like collateral damage. And I used to have nightmares that I ran into her and I wouldn't know what to say to her, right? I would run into her and my mouth would open and nothing would come out. You feel like some sort of guilt about what you exposed her to. You know, when it became, you know, when you understood what, what really happened, I mean, for President Clinton, it's like, you know, people in the Me Too movement talk about the power dynamic. This is like abuse of the power dynamic on a historic scale, right? He's president of the United States. She's a young intern. She's not even a staff person. I didn't think he should be impeached, but he went on and her life was forever changed in a way that his wasn't. And then a few years ago, I ran into her in Vancouver, weirdly, as like a bank of elevators at a hotel. And I, uh, I was like, Monica? And of course she braces, right? Because she's when people approach her, but then she recognized who it was. You know, I found I knew what to say. I said, I'm so sorry, right? So sorry just for what everything that she had been through because he was a Democratic president, right? It's all because of, of him. And what I see things evolve and what I think Me Too in the United States is about is we used to, we were always interested in sex and politics, but it was all about what does this say about the man, right? So like with JFK, if he had an affair or, you know, and then going on to like with Clinton, it wasn't concerned about Monica. It was like, well, what does this say about Bill Clinton? What does this say about John Edwards? And now the change is the concern is about what impact did this have on the woman? It's not just that the man shouldn't advance because of what he did or that it reflects badly on him. He needs to be held accountable to her. That's what I see differently now. What an incredible story. Now we've tackled some major themes in 2020, but some comic relief never goes astray. I'd like to end on a funny note from Mary Beard. When I asked her one of my standard questions, if you could change one thing for women overnight, what would it be? Her response was unexpected, practical, and still has me chuckling. Oh, blimey. 
That's really difficult, actually. <laughs> when you start to think of this, I mean, you can start to think of, uh, you know, big thing. You know, you could have that. You could have a big political initiative about domestic violence and whatever, you know. But usually, important as those are, if you want to think about kind of mass making a difference, you have to think about, you know, I get someone to redesign tights. <laughs> something like that you know because you know, women are still I mean I put my tights on this morning and you know there's a hole in the toe and it's jolly uncomfortable <laughs> and they don't really fit and then they kind of come and I think just imagine all the women walking around the world today <laughs> now all right you could say this is a definite first world problem I accept that you know you know there are many women who do not have the luxury of a pair of tights and so you know I'm pleading guilty to a first world problem but within the first world you know let's do something about tight design <laughs> right to all the innovators out there there's a challenge this year has been one of immense challenge but we've also seen the best of people on a podcast of one's own in 2020 I spoke to women leading in healthcare, politics, comedy, science, activism, academia, film, television and trade unions, to name only a few. Their stories sustained and inspired me and left me optimistic. We are still making progress on gender equality. 2021 will no doubt test us, but it will also be the time in which we as a global community can fairly share vaccines, hope and renewal. Please join me for another year of podcast conversations with women about gender and leadership, success, failure, and all that comes in between. Wishing you a wonderful start to 2021, and well done. We've made it through 2020. been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london if you want to learn more about our work visit the global institute for women's leadership website and sign up to our updates this podcast has been produced by connie blafari and james miller with king's online with editing by nick hilton if you liked what you've been listening to we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider we're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.